Welcome. This is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. This is another in the JNIS podcast, and today I'm delighted to have Akash Consagra from Washington University in St. Louis from the Department of Radiology, who will speak today on his manuscript entitled The Value of Long-Term Angiographic Follow-Up Following Pipeline Embolization of Intracranial Aneurysms, which is currently online uh, on the JNIS website and will soon be published in print uh, in the JNIS. Uh, at the outset, I would like to say that uh, this podcast is supported by Rapid Medical. Rapid Medical develops responsive neurovascular devices for improved control of procedural success. Recently, the pivotal TIGER trial showed superior good clinical outcomes and reperfusion for the TIGER Trever thrombectomy device compared to previous landmark trials. Tiger Trever gives interventionalists greater control over clot removal, allowing them to see the device and tailor the radial force during retrieval. With this real-time responsiveness, the pivotal trial demonstrated the lowest rate of distal emboli in 24-minute median procedure time. For more information, contact your local rapid medical representative to learn more about this new class of adjustable thrombectomy devices or visit their website at info at rapidmedical.com. I'm thrilled to welcome Akash Consagra from Washington University in St. Louis to discuss his uh, most recent paper published in the JNIS online. Akash, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, I read this study with interest. Um, as you may know, uh, our institution does a lot of these uh, treatments uh, using the pipeline embolization device since the days of the original trials. So uh, this I thought was a fascinating manuscript and one I think that really could change our practice. So I, I wanted you to discuss at the outset, what was the impetus behind this study? Were you seeing changes in your practice that you felt you needed to deal with? Just uh, if you could give us uh, a little bit of uh, background. Absolutely, happy to. Um, the impetus behind the study was that, you know, we've been treating patients with pipeline for about 10 years. And so uh, at a, also at a fairly high volume center. And so we're starting to see the first group of patients that are um, have kind of gone through two, three, four, five years of pipeline follow-up. And we're, we're starting to have to confront those questions about how best to follow these patients up. Um, you know, we were fortunate in neurointervention that we live in an era these days of very large trials. That's great for our field. But I think one thing we've learned is that trials don't answer every question that comes up in the care of these patients. And it's up to experienced physicians in the field to fill in those gaps. And one of those gaps is while we have lots of clinical trial data to guide us on the safety and efficacy of pipeline and other flow diverters and key applications, the follow-up piece has never really, really been studied. Uh, and this, if you ask the patient, is a really important component of the overall treatment package. Yeah, I mean, certainly um, it's critical for, for both the patient and, and for us in terms of gathering information on, on their long-term outcomes. One question I had kind of at the outset regarding the trial was, it seemed, and looking at the numbers in which you know, you had nearly, I think, uh, 416 aneurysms, and then 
included in this uh, particular review 159 patients with 211 of those aneurysms. I was curious how those other patients were followed and how you excluded them. Obviously, it was based partially on the angiographic follow-up, but perhaps you could detail that a bit more. Sure thing. Um, we started out the study looking at 416 uh, aneurysms, and we excluded those patients who did not have uh, their initial follow-up at a pretty strict uh, time window around six months. I think it's plus or minus two months. Um, there were some patients that for one reason or another uh, had follow-up earlier, some patients who had follow-up a little bit later. And so in order to give very clear guidance to our community, we uh, we did drop those patients from the study. We only wanted to include patients who had their initial follow-up at six months. In addition, there are some patients in whom uh, I have to acknowledge in our group, we've already recognized that uh, that really long-term follow-up has limited value in some of these patients. And so many patients that we've seen uh, have aneurysm occlusion at the six-month follow-up, we've already stopped following those patients um, long-term. And so uh, that, that explains the majority of the, uh, of the dropout from the study. And the patients who are left, the 211 uh, aneurysms that remain in the study are those that have both the six-month follow-up and later angiographic follow-up. In, in my practice nowadays, uh, we've already started to shift where we'll start to use MRA follow-up a little bit more aggressively in these patients uh, for, for longer-term screening instead of angiography. Yeah, I've, I, I would say I've gone to that. I've also used CT angiography. Uh, what about getting the detail within the stent and at the aneurysm neck with those types of uh, non-invasive uh, imaging? Um, can you comment on that and, and to how you know, accurately you're, you're able to see subtle things like malapposition and, and uh, an endoluminal leak or instant stenosis? That's a great question. So those those findings are actually quite important for follow up. Um, and MRI does not reliably pick those findings up. You see you see uh, metallic susceptibility artifact in the vicinity of the pipeline, and those are the kinds of things that you really have to detect angiographically. Um, and so, really, these findings pertain to patients in whom a six month conventional angiogram shows the absence of an endo leak, shows absolute complete aneurysm inclusion. And, once, and one of our findings is that in patients with those findings at six months from complete aneurysm occlusion, we didn't find any examples in our cohort of patients who subsequently recanalized. So in a sense, we don't have to worry about that issue at all. Um, but detecting those uh, abnormalities on angiography still requires a keen eye. They can be subtle, but, the, but I think the study reminds us that it's really important to look for those subtle abnormalities. Absolutely. And, and I think you lead right into my next point, which we should have probably hit at the very beginning. But if you could summarize the major findings uh, of this manuscript, that would be great. Absolutely. There are a few principal findings. Uh, the, the, probably the most important finding is that uh, in our series, 100% of patients with aneurysms that were occluded at six months remained occluded long term. We did not find a single example of someone. Uh, of a patient or an aneurysm with, uh, that, that recanalized after having a high-quality angiogram showing aneurysm occlusion. Uh, similarly, uh, we only had 1.3% of cases that developed instant stenosis despite having a six-month angiogram uh, with no stenosis. So that's a very low rate of 
quote unquote, actionable findings on long-term angiography. Um, importantly, it's also uh, key to recognize the areas in which the study indicates the follow-up probably is important. We did have one example of an aneurysm that became worse on follow-up, and that was an aneurysm with a small entry remnant that later partially recanalized. Uh, so, you know, in many cases from our coiling days, we try not to place too much emphasis on those small entry remnants, but they are really important. So in this particular case, that entry remnant grew back into the coiled mass of the aneurysm, or was it an excrescence and a, a de novo aneurysm? So there were no coils in this particular aneurysm, but there was a small, very small neck remnant on the six-month angiogram. And on later, I believe about 18-month angiography, uh, the, uh, the a larger portion of the aneurysm sac had recanalized. Still not very large. Uh, it was still about 90% aneurysm occlusion, but certainly larger than the initial um, entry remnant. Uh, so uh, it, I don't believe it was de novo aneurysm. I think it was uh, clot mobilization. Okay. And that potentially is something that would be a, a bit challenging to, to see definitively with, with MRA at follow-up. Uh, is, is that what you're recommending or should we do uh, more routine follow-up angiography on a patient with that type of neck remnant? I think my takeaway from the study is, is you can probably drop the long-term follow-up if in, in a very strict sense, those key endpoints are met that there is absolute complete aneurysm occlusion and no instant stenosis. If either one of those are not completely met, then I think it's probably prudent to stick with our conventional angiographic follow strategy, which uh, varies from center to center, but typically involves a second angiographic follow up either a year after treatment or 18 months after treatment uh, until we have further data on the long term. Uh, the long-term fate of these aneurysms with very small remnants. Okay. Well, in my mind, uh, the importance of this study was that it basically eliminated the need for long-term angiographic follow-up in a particular subset of patients that underwent flow diversion. I also really enjoyed the discussion, and you, you used the term low-value angiographic follow-up and discussed some of the drawbacks of doing the angiographic follow-up. If you could elaborate a bit on that, Akash. Happy to. Um, yeah, so in uh, in our field, I think we have to be pretty shrewd assessors of risk. And so much of what we do on a daily basis entails substantial risk. And so we have to be comfortable working in those situations, but you never want to invite unnecessary or pointless risk. And so as, as I mentioned in our study, we showed that in patients with a six-month post-treatment angiogram showing complete aneurysm occlusion and no instant stenosis, we really didn't find much value to the subsequent angiographic follows. And that's pretty exciting to me. Uh, eliminating this low-value angiographic follow-up, uh, first of all, reduces the aggregate clinical risk that these patients have to face. Um, you know, we typically don't count the risks of angiography when we describe the uh, risks of treatment to a patient, and certainly when we quote studies, uh, we just describe the risks of the index procedure. Uh, but when you're from the patient perspective, when you're talking about the overall risks of a treatment pathway, uh, those risks are part of the package. And, you know, I have to add that beyond just the clinical risk, I think it's really important to understand the non-clinical impact of what some might consider excessive follow-up. You know, not everyone, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate in my life, as many of us are, that 
Um, you know, if I need to take time off of work, I can. And if I need to travel somewhere, I can just jump in my car. Not all of our patients have the same options. And so for our patients that can't negotiate time off of work or don't have reliable transportation or are of limited financial means, uh, you know, eliminating this follow-up is potentially really impactful. Um, a few years ago, I recall reading a story about a patient that had survived a really devastating subarachnoid hemorrhage from an aneurysm rupture and recovered well, which we would all consider a dramatic success. But her major regret was surviving that aneurysm rupture because of the bill she faced afterwards. And I think that was, uh, stories like that remind me that we have to be cognizant of these additional patient burdens. And if we have an easy way to reduce those burdens without compromising the care, uh, then that's a fantastic opportunity for us in our field. Yeah, no, that, those are excellent points. And we, we don't really think about that as a, as neurointerventionalists. A, a diagnostic angiogram for us is half an hour, 45 minutes. Whereas for the patient, it's, it may be weeks of planning, getting family to take them back and forth, uh, the financial burden, as you mentioned. So yeah, the, these are not uh, inconsequential events for these patients that many of whom have already been through you know, tremendous challenges. Um, so just finally to conclude, Akash, you mentioned that the follow-up of these patients has not been standardized. <clears throat> and I think we all agree on that. But Based on your study, how would you standardize the follow-up for all patients treated with flow diversion for aneurysms? That's a great question. And I have to admit, I don't know that I have the perfect recipe, uh, but what I will say is this, that I think there's a lot of data and a lot of evidence surrounding uh, the use of six-month angiography, six-month post-treatment angiography. Um, we have a pretty good sense of what the occlusion rates should be at that point. And it happens to coincide also in time with uh, the time point at which we're thinking about stopping dual antiplatelet therapy. So I, I, my takeaway from this is I think six-month angiography more or less has to happen. Um, if yeah. that study shows anything amiss, uh, then uh, another angiogram six to 12 months afterwards seems reasonable and prudent to me. But if nothing is amiss, I think it's probably reasonable to switch to an MRA, MRA at that point. And in my own practice, I tend to use an MRA, you know, a couple of years after uh, post, uh, the pipeline treatment. And then I will also do another follow-up MRA a few years later. Again, not so much to follow the pipeline, but to look for formation of new aneurysms uh, in other parts of the cerebral circulation. Okay. Uh, but but I, at the end of the day, I think it's important that this recommendation be tailored to individual patients. Um, and there probably is room for a study of different, a detailed, dedicated study of different follow-up paradigms and where, where, um, you know, where the value lies in, in terms sure. of cost to society and hospitals. Sure. Uh, and one thing we didn't, uh, we didn't delve into uh, in any detail was, was type of aneurysm and, and location of aneurysm. Uh, you, you mentioned that certainly these follow-ups and treatments need to be tailored to the patient and and certainly those are, are other um, serious considerations. Well, um, thank you so much, Akash. Uh, congratulations on this uh, important study. It's uh, so well conducted, uh, so simple uh, in, in its uh, findings. Uh, and uh, those simple things are often uh, the ones that change our practice the most. And, and this certainly has given me food for thought and, and motivated me to change my practice in managing these patients. So again, thank you for uh, joining me. Uh, the title of 
Dr. Consagra's manuscript is the value of long-term angiographic follow-up following pipeline embolization of intracranial aneurysms. And as I mentioned, you can find it on the JNIS website and stay tuned for seeing it soon in the print edition of the JNIS. Thank you again, Akash, and best to you. Thank you.